0: This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Writers on a New England Stage brings acclaimed authors to the Granite State to discuss their lives and recent works. Earlier this year, former NHPR host Peter Biello spoke at length with best-selling author Amor Tolles about his latest novel, The Lincoln Highway. Well, Amor Tolles, Thank you very much for being here for Writers on a New England Stage. This is wonderful. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be here. <laughs> so I absolutely love this book. When I read Gentleman in Moscow, I was really hoping you would be here for your next one. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we could talk a little bit about my impressions of the book later, but I wanted to hear what other readers may have told you about the Lincoln Highway.
1: Yes, so the, the one of the great things about the modern era is that... If, if you, for instance, if, there's a, if you have a question tonight and we don't get to it, you can reach me by going to amortolls.com, and if you go to the contact page, your comment or question comes right to me. And this is a great thing, but uh, because this exists, usually when a, a book of mine comes out, like the Lincoln Highway, it takes about seven days for the first corrections to start rolling in. And so I wanted to give you sort of a sense of, of, of what that's like, because uh, sometimes they're very helpful, and sometimes n- not so much. So, so, for instance, I received an email uh, from a reader who said, you start too many sentences with I-N-G words. <laughs> now, this is a good example of what is not helpful. <laughs> uh, the best thing about this email, though, was the last sentence, which was... Looking, <laughs> looking forward to your next book. <laughs> but so, so I wanted to share two others with you, which I'm, I'm going to have to read because I, I, I want to do justice to the uh, original uh, uh, material here. So I have to set this up quickly uh, in the Lincoln Highway, uh, Duchess, and uh, oh, sorry, well this is the wrong one. I'm going to give you the other one first. Sorry. So to set this up. Uh, Late in the book, the, Emmett and his friends have a sort of a fancy dinner in a fancy house. Things go awry, and as a result, uh, Emmett, late at night, finds himself in the kitchen doing dishes in this nice home by himself in a sort of penance, as it were. And uh, so this is a, a, an email I received from uh, Karen in Wisconsin. On page 477, you describe how Emmett and Sally are doing the dishes, saying, first Emmett washed the plates, then the crystal, then the pots. (laughs) As the winner of the 1973 Betty Crocker Future Homemaker Award, in my high school, I can tell you with some authority that the proper way to wash the dishes is first the crystal, then the plates, and then the pots. (laughs) Thank you, Karen from Wisconsin. So to set this up, uh, later in the novel, Duchess uh, sort of borrows Emmett's car uh, and he's going along the Lincoln Highway east And he gets, sort of he's going through Ames, Iowa, and he and Wooly run out of gas. So he's on the side of the road, they have no money, and Duchess is trying to decide what to do. So he looks up the road and he sees that there's a liquor store, and it's the morning. So he figures they won't be open yet, and he could uh, go inside, maybe find some loose money, or if worse comes to worse, he could take some bottles of whiskey and give them to the gas station attendant in exchange for gas. That's his plan. So uh, here is a nice note from uh, Pam in Pequot, Michigan. There were no liquor stores in Ames, Iowa in 1954. (laughs) Hard liquor and wine could only be purchased at the county seat of Boone. This meant that my parents, who were heavy drinkers, had to go all the way to Boone uh, in order to buy their liquor. Every week, my mother and I would drive to Boone to buy a case of Gallo wine, (laughs) sweet and dry Gallo vermouth, and some no-name bourbon. The clerk gathered up uh, for the customer the liquor, uh, and when he sold it, he produced a ledger, and the customer had to write down their name and what they had purchased. Now, the best part about this is the P.S. P.S. We lived across the street from my first grade teacher, Mrs. Hammond. And Mrs. Hammond told us that the headmaster, Mr. Parker, went to the liquor store every week to read what and how much his teachers were drinking. So... uh, We are, the book has been out for about seven months. We are past the corrections phase. (laughs) But if you would like to share your parents' drinking habits, you are
0: welcome to do so.
1: All right, so. Well,
0: I'm curious. Are those corrections that you would feel compelled to revise in a second edition? And I only ask that because there are some writers out there, I think Annie Proust said, if I make an error of factual uh, significance, uh, or something that takes the reader out of the story, like I'd lie awake in shame. I'm sort of paraphrasing there, but her her stickler, her, her instincts to stick to the details, no matter how uh, trivial, really bothered her. But sure. it, for me, I didn't know the order of washing dishes. It didn't yeah. bother me. Yeah. I suspect it didn't bother most readers. Is that right. something that that would would really bother you? So
1: I don't feel compelled to do anything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but but uh, but I do make probably. Forty changes to the hardcover as it moves to paperback, okay. and the majority of those changes are uh, from driven by reader comments. Now, I, I will not change the order of the dishwashing. <laughs> now, partly because Emmett wouldn't know that. Okay, uh, I won't change the liquor store issue either because I'm fine with the liquor store being in Ames, Iowa, and, you know, that, that suits me just fine. But there are things that I will change, and so a good example is in A Gentleman in Moscow, uh, for those of you who read that book, um, early... Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: You'll remember, there's a scene early in, relatively early in the novel where the Count goes to the roof of the hotel. Uh, his intention is not much of a spoiler, but it's to throw himself off the building, and he encounters a beekeeper, uh, a maintenance guy is keeping bees on the roof of the hotel, and uh, he gives some of the honey to the count, and the count says, oh my, you know, this is amazing, it, it, it tastes just li- like lilacs. And the old beekeeper says, well yeah, that's, that's what happens, you know, the, the boys go out to the lilac uh, trees by uh, the Kremlin, and, and when they come back, the honey tastes like lilac, and when they go off to the cherry orchards, you know, they, they come back and it tastes like uh, the cherry blossoms. So I received this lovely email from a woman uh, in upstate New York who said, you know, I I really enjoyed your book. I found it very moving. But I think that you should know that the boy bees do not go out to the lilacs. It's the girl bees who go to the lilacs. So if you read the current paperback edition of A Gentleman in Moscow, it's the girl bees who go out to get the honey.
0: So it's a mix. Some Sometimes. I take, some I don't. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you about how you begin your books because in each of them, Rules of Civility, Gentleman in Moscow, and this one, The Lincoln Highway, they, they're written in such a way that w- once you read that first chapter, like there's no way you're putting it down. I, th- I think most of you would agree with me on that one. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a magic trick not all writers can pull off. Maybe it's not even magic. What, what is it? What are you, what are you doing there? What, what do you think makes a good beginning?
1: Uh, that's, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I guess I'll start by saying this, is that I've been writing fiction since I was a kid, and I've had many story or novel or ideas over the course of my life. They usually come to me in the form of a sentence. Um, so, you know, like, uh, a guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. You know, that was the sentence that came to me that... I began to dwell on and became a gentleman in Moscow. and uh, so, Or in the case of Lincoln Highway, I think it's what you'd expect. I had this notion of a kid being driven home from a juvenile facility by the warden, and when the warden drives off, it turns out that two kids from the facility have hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. That's what I started with. And then I start to imagine from there. Um, And I'll spend a couple of years imagining the story in every detail before I I write the book. Um, But you've kind of put your your finger on a very sensitive aspect of it, which is how to begin it and mm-hmm. and, uh, and you you try to imagine what is a good launching point and, and what's really going to to set this this story in motion and, and and of course you want to capture the attention of the reader, but you want to sort of have something which has the spirit of Of what's about to happen sort of embedded in it, some of the personality of it. So there's a lot that goes into thinking about not only where to start that chapter, but then rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this classic piece of advice for young writers is when you have a short story, you throw out the first, you know, page. When you have a novel, you throw out the first chapter. Because there's this element while you're writing that you're working your way up to the momentum of events, and, and, and you're kind of setting it up for yourself, giving a little background, explaining the, where the character's from, telling us something about what they look like or what their internal life is like, and all that, you just want to get off the desk, and you want to just start, and so I had the advantage in the case of the Lincoln Highway, I'm sorry, in the case of a gentleman in Moscow, that there was going to be this trial, and then he was going to be marched into the hotel, and I love that sort of notion of, we're going to be marched across Red Square and enter the hotel, and we're all going to begin this together, you know, with the character. And uh, the Lincoln Highway was, I had this sort of notion of, he's going to be, it's going to be, him right from the start, he's going to be driven home. And he's going to find, and then I had that sort of this notion that it, the banker is going to be waiting there to foreclose. And and his brother is na- going to be brought over afterwards. And you start to build on sort of this sequence of events uh, in a way that, that hopefully launches it well. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say one other thing about it is I, I do think that I actually think that beginnings are easier to write than endings, for me. Really? I mean, I think generally, my observation, and I think that uh, I think a lot of writers write like <laughs> like this, you know, which is that you start with this, or a lot of, we've read books like this, I think all of us, but where the, the opening is is great, or the they have an interesting premise, or there's a great sort of event that occurs at the beginning, or the character's terrific, or whatever, and sometimes when they write a book like that, you can feel it kind of building and going outward, but they kind of lose control of it in the middle or the sec, two-thirds in, and you can start to feel it drifting and getting like it's not making sense, and where is this going, and, and it kind of, we can feel it kind of peter out, and uh, so I, I try to be very conscious of trying to read a book like that, you know, so, so as much as I want to get the beginning right, I'm very actively thinking it from the very beginning of where is this whole thing going, Mm-hmm. I want the reader to be moving towards this terminal point that is satisfying, but is also the culmination of all events in this way that seems unavoidable, even if it's surprising, and that all of the energy and language of the book should be moving towards that point. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so in a way, I think that's the bigger challenge than so- to start well.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, um, for me, if if there were a point you were driving at in each of these books. It's, it's a central question that's raised almost in the first chapter. Like for, for Rules of Civility, for example, it's like, what's, what happened to Tinker Gray? You know, yeah. what yeah. made him appear that way in that photo that we see in the first chapter? And for the right. Lincoln Highway, it's, are they going to make it to California to find their mother at that event?
1: Right, yeah, that's right. So, Which then is a sort of a
0: sleight of hand, because, <laughs> you know, right. go to California. But I love that about that, you know. Right. I'm, I'm, I, I think someone in the audience has a question about a sequel, so we'll, okay, yeah, we'll okay. likely get to that. Um, what I also loved about um, the storytelling here in The Lincoln Highway, and, and maybe this is also how you kept the novel from getting too unwieldy, is that it is very self-consciously about storytelling in the sense that Billy, uh, the, the young boy in this book, is, is thinking about Where's the middle point of a story? And he is obsessed with this book that is uh, constant, repeated demonstrations of a heroic or tragic arc. Um, I'm wondering what you thought about when you were thinking about putting in so explicitly thoughts about story structure. Uh, I I think one, there's a couple of aspects to
1: that, and maybe I'll just touch on one. And I I think an important one, and I didn't really think about this while I was writing the book, but I I thought a lot about it in, in retrospect, which is that without question a very central theme in the book, I guess, and I hope the book has many themes for different readers, but, but a central theme is the experience of being 18. And uh, not only do you have Duchess and Emmett and Woolly at that point in their lives, but you have Sally, you have Townhouse in, in Harlem. Um, so the, the central group of characters are all about 18 or 19 years old. And I think what's interesting about that time of life is that all of us, and for, and for all time, uh, between the age of zero and 16, we are receiving a sort of a constant flow of, in essence, instruction from our parents, from the schools, from the church, from the community at large. And that information which we're receiving from the age, age of zero to 16, which we receive kind of passively, um, is really to, there to shape us. It's, it's information being handed over to give us a sense of what is right and wrong, to give us a sense of how the world works to give us a sense of what, what we should expect from others and from ourselves, uh, how we should treat others, right? That's what, all, what the heritage is that informs that. That's what all that information is. And, and somehow, around the time we're 17, 18, or 19, we suddenly realize, wait a second, I don't have to accept any of that. Like, you know, that's all great, mom, dad, schoolhouse, church, whatever, but I have the, f- the freedom and the responsibility to decide these things myself. That's a very exciting moment in our lives and opens this very complicated and interesting time where the young person consciously or unconsciously is accepting some of the things they were taught and deciding to amplify them in their lives, or they're consciously or unconsciously rejecting some of those things that they received uh, and trying to avoid those things in their lives. The reason I lay all this out for your question is because a very central aspect of that process is storytelling. And if you look at the characters in the book, you have uh, Duchess who's very influenced in this interesting way by uh, his father's life in vaudeville, by the colorful stories of the characters, but then also by the Shakespearean monologues that his father used to uh, perform. Because presumably Duchess has heard those monologues a thousand times each. And that's been an influence on him. For Sally, you have the parables in the Bible are clearly very influential to her that she either accepts or rejects depending upon how she thinks the world should work or how her life should be unfolding. And then, of course, you have, as you say, Billy sort of introduces this epic group of, of stories, these books of heroes, uh, which are a variety of, you know, particularly with the story of Ulysses at the center, I guess. Um, and so, so that's, I think, very natural that as we're coming of age, we've received these narratives, which are there to inform sort of how we should address the world. But then when you hit this moment where you're taking charge, it's your opportunity to kind of reassess, what do those stories mean? And, uh, and do I want to carry those forward? Would I tell them to my children? You know, and that's all kind of built in there too. So I felt it was very natural as the story was unfolding to be overlapping these various forms of narrative with the
0: evolution of of the thought process of of the heroes. Mm -hmm. There's one moment in this novel that I love where Emmett takes control of his narrative in a way that his father didn't. Uh, His father had this farm, uh, didn't really ask for help or know what he was doing and kept switching crops and the farm has eventually failed. Uh, Emmett is lost in New York City and he's trying to figure it out on his own and uh, he realizes at a certain point, he's like, I'm just doing what my father did. I'm trying to figure it out without asking for help. And as yeah. soon as he asks for help, yeah. he figures it out. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that's a good example. Right, exactly right. That's a, That was a wonderful scene. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Duchess, because he's infuriating <laughs> in the most entertaining yeah. way. And uh, unlike Emmett, who sees his father's error and sort of corrects it, Duchess just still kind of maintains that deceptive quality, although he even deceives himself into thinking he's, he's not. Uh, I, I was wondering if there was a particular inspiration for Duchess or how Duchess came together as a character in your mind. None of my characters in any of my books are based on people, so they're all inventions, and there's sort of this
1: process that I go through in the early stages of designing or inventing a story where I'm trying to understand the characters, understand who they are, figure out who they are, and You sort of go through this repetitive process where you say, I think the character's a little like this. And then you imagine them in a circumstance with the other characters, and through their actions, you realize, oh, no, no, they're a little bit different than I thought initially. And you sort of get a little bit better sense, and you then rethink that scene. And then then that changes what happens in that scene. And then that gives you a new inclination. So as I say, all during this design phase, I'm doing that until suddenly I get to the point where I'm like, yeah, I know these, I now know this ensemble of characters very well, Wooly or Duchess. And with Duchess, for me, the starting point it was a little bit what I mentioned a second ago, which is that I had this notion of what, what would it be like to have a young kid who's raised in sort of a tough neighborhood, of the Lower East Side, but around colorful people who are kind of failures, because the end of vaudeville, they're a little bit drunk, they're all kind of con men, but they're performers at the same time. That what if he, he didn't have much of an education but he had access to these Shakespearean monologues, like more than access. He had been flooded with these Shakespearean monologues. Like what what kind of person would come out of that? On the one hand, sort of very colorful and charismatic, having been raised among storytellers and liars and fibbers and everyone's exaggerators, at least. Um, And then having sort of this sense of the Shakespearean worldview and the Shakespearean language, the florid language, but without really knowing the plays necessarily. You know, sometimes he might know the monologue, but not the play. So he doesn't really know the context. He knows sort of the, the great sort of quality of that speaking. And I like this sort of moment in, in the book where he finds himself, uh, it's in the, he's sort of remembering a moment in the youth prison where one of the uh, a racist uh, member, fellow inmate has set up a townhouse, uh, the black, uh, a black inmate who's a friend of, Duchess and, uh, and uh, Emmett's. Duchess figures this out and reverses events. And everybody kind of gathers around him in the, uh, in the barracks to sort of say, what just happened? You know, as they're sort of celebrating this reversal where the, the racist gets in trouble and, and townhouse is, is saved, thanks to Duchess. And he sort of very naturally stumbles into this version of Henry V's Henry uh, Band of Brothers speech you know, sort of where he's rallying the troops. And, but it's all kind of screwed up. Like, if you went back and read it, the language is familiar, it's kind of like Shakespeare, and it's, but, but it's, it's not exactly right. But his peers eat it up anyway. They love it, yeah. right? and he loves it, and he's feeling very heroic. And, and again, it's, sort of, like, it's a, sort of this idea of he's kind of got the Shakespearean message, but he doesn't really know all the facts, and so he kind of misuses it sometimes. So that was the starting point. But I think that, for me, one of the interesting things, I hope this is the experience for readers. It was kind of the experience for me as the writer, I guess, is that if you, if you read Duchess through the book over the course of the 10 days, um, from a narrative standpoint, you're, he's doing things that are a little bit worse every other day, mm. <laughs> giving you cause to have greater doubt about him or more concern about him and whether he's going to, you know, how bad could you know, he do? But, but in parallel to that in the narrative is we're learning more and more about his youth. And these things are happening simultaneously for the reader. And so he does something a little worse, and I hope you're like, ooh. But then you learn a little bit more about his past, and you're like, oh, no, you know, that, that, that's not, you know, poor Duchess. So that you're kind of going back and forth between your allegiance to him and his charm and his sympathy for what he's been through and your anxiety about his decisions, let's say. And, and so that kind of became a part of the, the, the realization of him as a full character for
0: me. Another uh, tick mark in the column for pro-duchess, go duchess, for me was um, that sometimes these crazy ideas that he had were right. I mean, he, yeah. he, he goes out to settle accounts, and he, he meets up with Townhouse and says, Townhouse, you need to hit me because I did you wrong. And Townhouse is like, really? Do I really need to hit you? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, do it. Yeah. And, he, and he does. And then later on, Townhouse admits, like, yeah, that felt pretty good. It and felt like, good. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I feel better. Yeah. <laughs> but but And duchess is... is Perhaps the biggest example, but there are other examples throughout this novel where the characters have these flaws baked into them that are sometimes doubling as virtues, sometimes not, but they're always there. And again, this is another one of those things where narrative, uh, the art of a narrative is built in, in the sense that you talk about Achilles. Achilles. Right And Billy is reading about Achilles and the fact that this man is strong, but he 's got his achilles heel um, it's His character flaw is baked into the cake i can 't imagine you didn't think a little bit about that as well
1: yeah, and, and I think more generally, the challenge of bringing a character to life you're, you're trying whether I achieve or not you know, that's up to the reader but you're, you're I am trying to create a three dimensional figure mm. and, and multiple three dimensional figures and and I, I think that the the, the closest you can come to doing that is by providing that character with the natural complexity of human beings, which means that their virtues aren't always virtuous, and their, you know, their limitations aren't always limitations, and you know, people are a mix of good and bad, and the context in which they're acting may make a good action actually have a bad outcome, or a bad action have a good outcome. It gets very confusing very quickly as we look around our own friends and family. And You try to slice, wait, you know, is Aunt Betsy good or bad? I don't know, you know. And so, and then you, you would discuss, well, she did this, no, she did that, but remember this, and remember that, and it would get, you know, you could not really pin it down. And, uh, and some like her, and you know, sometimes she's hilarious, and sometimes she drives you crazy, whatever. I don't have an Aunt Betsy, by the way. <laughs> but, but uh, so I I, I want the characters to have that quality for a reader, which is not in a, in a way that makes sense to them, right? And that's part of the challenge, which is you're, you're trying to create uh, conflicting aspects of a personality that at the same time the reader recognizes as a natural contradiction in human character. Um, and when you kind of get that, then you sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, this is now, I can feel this is becoming a, a, a person in a three-dimensional sense, not just a character or a cutout, or a stock character.
0: Yeah, or a, or a rule they follow no matter what. Yeah, right. You know, Emmett's got his count to 10 before you hit someone rule, and yeah. at a certain point he realizes that 10 ain't high enough. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> uh, reading about these characters and their, their flaws, their virtues, um, it, it made me think that you as an author must have a really good sense of your own flaws and virtues. <laughs> So I, I want, and I wanted to put you on the spot a little bit and say, like, like, is there a a, a virtue of yours that you also think might double as a flaw?
1: Yeah, I be, you know I believe what Sarah says late in the novel that that, that our, our our virtues can become in abundance tend to undermine us in some way, or or, or can, can bring misery upon us, and or. or uh, can interfere with happiness in our lives, and I, you know, and I do believe that. Um, I really should get my wife and children up here for this <laughs> question, because <laughs> they'd be like, "Dad, dad, dad," da, and I'll be, "Oh yeah, right, right, that, that, and that, and that," you know. But but it, it's like uh, uh, I'm a fast talker, let's say. Mm-hmm. And and that is can be a great advantage in a certain circumstances and a terrible setback in others. It's working super well right rela- now. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this too. I think this is kind of related to the, to the Sarah thing where she makes this observation about... Because she's really talking about her brother, Willie. And she's kind of talking about her husband too. Mm. That this sort of the big heartedness of Willie that she says, you know, we were raised to imagine that that we should you know, strive for these various virtues, and she kind of lists them. She says, but but if you actually found somebody who has one of those virtues in abundance, very often there, there's unhappiness that comes from that, and, and she's you know, worried about her big-hearted brother and, and how hard it is for him to navigate the world happily, given how sensitive he is more broadly. Um, if I think of like a passage like that, and in my work, uh, well, put it more broadly, when when somebody, comes to me or writes to me and says, you know, this was a I really thought this passage was insightful or, or meaningful to me, or I wrote it down, or I read it to my my daughter, or I, you know, sent it to my husband, or whatever the context is, when they tell me whatever that passage is, 99% of the time, I would never have had that idea in the course of my normal life. Hmm. Like I never would have said it to my children or observed it to a friend or written it in my diary or whatever. um, Those sort of insights are almost always a product of the writing process itself because you've created somebody who you are not with a background you don't have, a personality you don't have, and you put them in a situation in which you've never been. And occasionally while you're writing, suddenly that character will say, you know, the thing about the world is, and da, 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 and it kind of flows right out uh, of, of the writing process. And I'm always like, well, done, Sarah. You know, you really <laughs> nailed that. You know, that's really interesting. You know, because that's the way it feels. It's almost as if you know, I'm hearing it from the first time. And, and, uh, and so anyway, but, but, but so
0: many, the, my characters are more virtuous than I am. I should say that too. <laughs> um, this is a paraphrase from a, a question from the audience. Uh, why did you decide to give some of your characters, the, the, the agency of first person narrative, and why are some in third person?
1: So it's true, the book's told from eight perspectives, six of them are in the third person, and two are in the first person, Duchess and Sally. Now to answer this question, I have to make a little bit of a technical observation here, which is that uh, none of the third person sections in the book, uh, or let's say in A Gentleman in Moscow, which is a third person narrative as well, in no case am I using the omniscient third person. Right? So, in the traditional um, nomenclature of, say, a Henry Jamesian omniscient narrator, that narrator knows all. They know everything that's ever happened to any of the characters in the past. They know what's going to happen to them in the future. They know what their internal thoughts are. Uh, they know many things that the characters don't know about their families or themselves. That's true omniscience in narration. In Gentleman Moscow, or in The Lincoln Highway, I use the third person, but it's a third person which is always very close to the protagonist. So in the case of Gentleman Moscow, it's the Count. In the case of The Lincoln Highway, it's whoever the chapter is, is about, whether it's uh, Willie or Emmett uh, or uh, Billy. In those chapters, even though it's third person, it is very clear, I hope, to the reader that it is, that third person is an extension, really, of the internal intelligence and emotional state, psychological state, and semantic vocabulary, as it were, of the individual in question. So the Wooly chapter sounds like Wooly. The observations are what he would make. The way he describes what he, the way he sees, is what he would, how he would describe it. And the pace of the chapter, the the complexity of the paragraphs, are a reflection of his inner self, and very different from the Emmett chapters. So, so I, have, I set that up because. For me, the first person and the third person is that different. You know, it's not this big gap between the first person who's the individual and what they know, and the third person is me. You know, it's not that. And, and so then it becomes a really refined question. And for me, as I was designing this book, what I really want to do is give the first person to those characters who it just felt like they would demand it. Mm-hmm. You know, Duchess is so sort of colorful and, and likes to exaggerate and, and, and is a little unreliable and just seemed like he'd be a guy who'd tell you the story himself. Mm-hmm. Whereas Emma's cooler and he's less for, forthcoming. He's, he's, he's more practical and sort of more even paced. And so I felt that that third person version of his, third pro, of his thought process made more sense. And again, Sally is so terrifically like willful and hilarious to me that you know she demanded a first person. She would never accept a third-person narration. My God.
0: <laughs> we, we got a question from the audience about uh, wealth and how it's, it's often referenced not just in this novel but in your others. Uh, I had a question about this too because it's never um, far from the surface if it's not directly on it. I was wondering why you thought that was... Uh, no pun intended here, such rich territory for mm. you to mine in your fiction.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm very interested in social strata. And and we, we, we can very casually say, oh, America, or, or any place. You know, you have uh, the upper class, the middle class, the, the working class, you know, some version of that. Three or four ver- categories are what we bandy about. But in the press, or in debates, or in politics. And when in reality... Uh, in New York City alone, there's got to be at least fifty social e- socioeconomic strata. Hmm. You know, going from the from the broke person who's just arrived yesterday, you know, to a billionaire whose life is just unfathomable. You know, for ninety-nine percent of us. And so, so there's this incredible gradations that uh, that interests me. And I think what's interesting uh, in particular about it is that at each step in this very intricate, nuanced, sort of layered thing, which you know, let's say in New York's New York life, is that each layer has its own ethics, its own vocabulary, its own style, its own set of ambitions, its own grudges, its own, its own path out, its own path down. And, and so when you sort of look, and, and, and the indiv- we as individuals are born into some version of that. And, and we immediately, once we're I say at 16 or 17, 18, are beginning to navigate the world in kind Consciously, of am I moving? to move laterally through this. Am I going to try to get out of this? Am I feel like I'm losing ground? You know, and, and a lot of of uh, the social turmoil in America is around these issues. You know, when, when we've all heard these, we've, we've heard this discussed at, at, at great length, and for very good reason in the last twenty five years. But we just had a fifty year period where the working middle class. Just kept losing a little ground every year. Richard Russo has written very beautifully about this dynamic in, in, in both nonfiction and fiction. But it's it's it seems like it was an endless process. You know, you take an industrial town, you know, like Detroit. It wasn't like a day, it was a 40-year process of just slowly grinding down a sort of a, a, a community, and that community at the beginning has a certain sense of. What's available to them, they have certain dreams they have for their children, they have a sense of what's right and wrong, they have a sense of self respect and and all that stuff, when you start to shift the dial, is to some degree coming under threat and and, 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 a, and, and has terrible ramifications and so so I just find that, as I say, and I, you could almost go to any layer and talk about some version of that little turn in the dial and how disruptive it is in the lives of, of all of us and so so I, I just find it infinitely interesting, particularly in this country of ours, which is this assembly of immigrants and
0: strivers and, and with historically strong upward mobility. There's a lot going on. Yeah. You're writing about some, some young people in this new novel uh, who don't have as sophisticated a view, of course, as, as, as you have right now with respect to those 50 strata in New York City. Right. Uh, but, but I'm curious about when you became aware of... How complicated that strata could be. Um, were, were you conscious at Emmett's age of of how complicated it could be, or did it dawn on you as you were? Because you worked in investments for a while, did it did it dawn on you because of the work you were doing? You know, I think I think like
1: many Americans, my real understanding of it came probably as a younger person. I mean, like maybe in my early teens through film and narrative, hmm. and it probably started. I would have to admit that my first sort of, maybe this is uh, common, but my first sense of social strata is being amazed by the glamour of, you know, uh, Fred Astaire movies. And, and that sort of looking at New York in the 30s and just sort of being amazed by the glamour of that. So, so round one is a kid in the suburbs in the 70s in middle class, you know, Detta, Massachusetts going, wow. You know that's something else, and you could see it was so foreign in so many ways. This sort of New York high society of, of of those films, and 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 wanting to aspire to that. But of course, you go further along, and then you know you're reading Faulkner, and uh, you know five years later or whatever, and you're and you're you're talking about the the uh, the Jim Crow South, in essence, and the the black peasant community who is who is struggling, the white. <laughs> Poor community that's struggling. The people who own the mansions, and, and you're like, oh, right. You know, it's not all about middle class and glamour. You know, there's this whole other types of layers out there, and and uh, and experiences which are are as unsettling or as uh, as as uh, generative of sympathy as the other one was of glamour and aspiration. And, and so, I think sort of through stories we do begin to get a sense of these different layers the, the, when storytelling is done well, either in film or in, uh, in fiction. And, and I think that's where you begin to build your understanding of, of these different layers of the world. And there's a lot of, of uh, greatness to that and a lot of injustice to it. And, and you, you, as a young person, that's kind of the, where you, you have an opportunity to start sift through that with some care, particularly if you're born with, in a relative, uh, relatively comfortable situation. You know, you're not born uh, in the inner city struggling. You know, where you would know it from day one. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And did your work in the investment world influence your fiction in a certain way? No. no. <laughs> you know, the, the, I, I
1: did work in the investment industry for 21 years, and uh, from the age of basically 25 to 45, and um, what? And, and the first 10 years, I had joined a friend of mine who had started his own firm, and it was just the two of us for a period of time, and four of us in the firm, we, we, we built the firm over, uh, and it's still a thriving... Firm in which I'm no longer active, and uh, but in that first ten years I stopped writing. I'd written all my life until then. And I stopped writing, and then I went back to writing, kind of in my spare time uh, when I was in reached my mid thirties. I, I knew that that while I wasn't writing, and sort of, it's all I ever wanted to do is be a writer, and, and so sort of from 25 to 35, I knew that if I didn't get back to it, I would probably end up bitter and a drinker. You know, that was my great concern. And so I I began writing again um, in my 30s. I wrote a book for seven years that I didn't like and set aside. That's where I really learned that I needed to be an outliner. Then I wrote Rules of Civility, and when that became a bestseller, I retired from my firm. But I lay all that out because the biggest thing that my career gave me was as this sort of middle-aged individual who had been writing all his life, Having this career already going on, I really could write just for myself. Mm -hmm. Because literally, by the time I sat down to write Rules of Civility, almost none of my friends knew I wrote fiction. Because all my friends had been, you know, so many of my friends had been accumulated between the age of 25 and 45. Mm -hmm. So they just didn't know I did it. And my family had kind of forgotten it. Politely, you know, (laughs) didn't ask about it, and uh, and so and so it was really wasn't a part of my personality. It's not how I I didn't I didn't have to write to put a roof over my head, my my children's head. I didn't have to uh, write to impress my peers. I wasn't competing with Jonathan Franzen or you know, or or Colson Whitehead who had no idea who I was. You know, so so there was a lot of freedom in that. I think at that age to really be able to say, okay, you know, I'm just gonna write this book to do the best thing that I can do in a way that satisfies myself as an artist and whatever the outcome. And, and, uh, and that would have been harder to do, I think, as a 25-year-old who was trying to make a living as a writer. Did you
0: Did you have a, um, a crew of people who would read your work in no. early drafts, no?
1: No, I, I, and in fact, my normal process is I will design a book for a couple of years, I'll write the first draft over a year to a year and a half, and I don't share the book with anybody until that has been cleaned up
0: and that was even the case while you were writing on the side uh, in the investment world
1: yeah so rules yeah. of civility i didn't share until the end and uh, you know i don't even share it with my my wife or my agent at this point or my editor they all get it on the same day and so mm. uh, that's just that's the way that suits me i think yeah and, and I, I i i i was that way anyway but gabriel garcia marquez talks about this in, in i think his memoir he remembers as a younger writer giving something, a short story to, or a chapter in a novel, maybe, to someone he admired. And it's a disaster. You know, the, the, the person he admired just talks not only about the flaws in the chapter, but in the misguided approach and questions, you know, his ability as an author, you know, it's a disaster. And, and Marquez basically says, you know, that was the end of that book, I would never return to it again. And he said that about a couple months later, he realized that the real mistake he'd made was sharing it at all, and he never did it again. And I think that's true, because there's a, for me, and different, some writers share and do it effectively. For me, it would be like, I'd share it because I want your feedback. But uh, if the feedback isn't good, it would be debilitating, you know? Yeah. And if it's good, then like, what am I getting, right? So, so I was just sort of like, you know what, I just got to work through this myself, finish it, and then get the feedback, and
0: and when I from a position of where I know what I have, mm-hmm. uh, we have a question from the audience. Someone wants to know, is there a favorite scene you have written? And this person in the audience didn't specify which book, so is there a favorite yeah. scene of all time? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's even harder. <laughs> I, I,
1: I, I I I think I'll, I'll make it a little bit more general. I'll be specific too, but but is the there's a natural quality I think. To many novels, I think it's true of mine (coughs) that the... um, I often think of of novel writing as very similar to symphonic composition. A novel can be like a symphony, more like a symphony than almost any of the other art forms, uh, in that, you know, symphony has movements in the way that a novel has chapters, and the movements uh, may have different moods. They may uh, be played at different tempos, and within the movement, the tempo and mood are shifting you'll have motifs, which are repeated over the symphony, played by different instruments. You know, here by an oboe, by itself, slowly, and then suddenly by the string section at fast pace, and then by the entire orchestra, you know, in sort of this great crescendo quality. And, and the novel kind of has all these elements to it when it's done well, I think. And, and, you know, it has these motifs. It has the opportunity to revisit different themes at different tempos and with different instruments, as it were. And the best of symphonies, of course, sort of culminate in this wonderful way. The end of a Mozart symphony, the end of a Beethoven symphony, it sort of builds up and suddenly it completes, and you're like, oh, yes, well done, Mozart. You know, And, and you don't, it shouldn't be a minute longer or a minute shorter, and it just feels perfect. And, and I want to have that experience for the reader when they close one of my books. I want them to be like, yes. and um, So I think a lot about that, and, but one aspect of that is the crescendo. And the crescendo is, doesn't have to be in the final... Movement of a symphony or the final chapter of a book it can come a couple of times at different points in a book Where for whatever reason suddenly all these various elements are coming together and in this natural way and Where the emotional activity and the, the intellectual activity of the characters all are kind of suddenly Rising and you can feel it as as you're writing it you can feel it as you're reading it I hope and like for instance in the gentleman in Moscow a good version of this for me is the boya base scene which is kind of in the middle of the book, but where the, you know, you've know you built this friendship between the count and the chef and the maitre d', and, and it's a hard time in Russia to get materials, and they slowly scramble together all the materials to make bouillabaisse, and, and I just remember writing that sequence and it just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as I wrote it, as more life kind of was expressing itself through this moment, and suddenly... You know, Andre. It had already been said that the chef was obsessed with his knives, and and then suddenly Andre reveals that he was a juggler in a former life, and he's juggling the chef's knives, and the chef is crying. You know, and I was like, "This is great! Wow!" You know, but but so it had this sort of quality, and of course, there's this big emotional aspect of it too, as they as they celebrate this night together at midnight or whatever. And um, in the Lincoln Highway, for those who've read it, for me, this is begins with. Uh, They abandon Emmett at the House of (laughs) Ill-Repute. And Duchess and Willie and Billy are driving over the Brooklyn Bridge, and Billy's annoying Duchess, and Duchess says, he's basically going to teach Billy a lesson. We're going to go to the Empire State Building to go find this author you love so much, Professor Abernathy. And they go, and they kind of go up into the thing, and, it, and, and they find Abernathy, and I'm sorry if you haven't read the book yet, and they have this encounter, and then they go from there to another place, where at where Abernathy's suggestion, they go to another place, and there's another layer to the encounter, which is even bigger. And then the whole thing is described by Wooly, kind of uh, his perspective on this night, and that was one of these things, these moments for me, where as I was coming into it, I was like, oh my God, this is gonna, oh this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And it just kept opening up in front of me, and all these sort of various emotional and intellectual strands from Duchess, from Billy, from Ulysses, from uh, from uh, all of them are coming together in the culmination of this moment. And so those do tend to be my favorite moments in the books.
0: Those are great scenes, yeah. Thank you for Thank sharing. You. Yeah. <clears throat> we, had, we had a question from someone in the audience. Uh, how much of your own childhood influenced how you developed Billy? And I, and I will say that I, if you're not following anymore on, on social media, you may not have seen the, the yeah. photo of the tin yeah. that he posted recently, the same tin that Billy used to keep his silver dollars.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. my, there's none of, my, none of my personality in Billy... Billy is someone I admire greatly. And, I, and, I, and, I, and he's... He's. I I think. We. Someone might say in today's terminology, maybe he's somewhere on the spectrum. That that, that Billy. uh, He's a very high functioning kid, but but he clearly has, uh, sort of aspects of uh, repetitive behavior. He's. Uh, when he's threatened, he withdraws into himself. Uh, he likes to keep everything just so. He has a very important order that he builds around himself as a way of managing the world. He has a backpack with everything that he cares about in it, and he puts it on wherever he goes, and carries it wherever he goes, and sort of this way. And, and I love these aspects about Billy. And I, and I, would, I wasn't like that, and I, I didn't have a sibling like that, but I, 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 have a, I love his sort of, the way he sort of grapples with the world, but at the same time is full of imagination and energy and confidence, faith, you know, he, he's convinced, oh yeah, we can take these postcards and follow them at the end, of we'll find mom, it's obvious, <laughs> you know, and, and, and this great way, and, 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 that, and I like the way that you take a young person's faith and you give them the ability to articulate it in that way without a moment's doubt, and how it can start to affect others who are older, who are naturally more skeptical, you know, given the experiences they've been through or the setbacks they've had, and and how the interaction between those two can suddenly start to change, the way an adult might see a set of circumstances, like the relationship between Billy and Ulysses or Billy and Emmett or whatever, and so, um, so so that's where that really comes from. But I will, what 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 uh, what Peter's mentioning is yes, on Instagram, I do kind of thread into my work weird things that I own, and and um, and it's. It, I don't really know where it comes from. But, but then I said, oh, I'll share them on Instagram. Why not? So a good example is that Billy, he was going to be a collector. I knew that. And, and I was like, oh, you know, what is he going to collect? And, you know, what's going to be the central collection? And my great grandmother died when she was 101. And when she turned 100, and I was probably, I don't know, uh, well, I know exactly how old I was. Uh, it would be uh, eight, I was 18, I guess. Uh, When she turned 100, uh, she gave all of her great-grandchildren an 1882 silver dollar. Because her 100th birthday was in 1982. So the the dollar was as old as she was. And so, you know, got it when I was 18 and have kept it with me ever since. And it's on my desk where I write. And so as I'm thinking, well, what's going to be Billy's collection? You know, I I want him to have a collection, and they're going to go on this road trip across in the train, and they're going to run into, you know, people on the train. And also I was like, maybe it's silver dollars. Yeah, that's interesting. And so then I started thinking that through because there it is sitting there. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. OK, it'll be silver dollars. But then as soon as I thought of that, I'm like, oh, and that Pastor John is going to come for the silver dollars. And you start to build on that. You take this little thing and say, oh, yeah, this is great. It's going to become this, this bigger uh, aspect of the story. And, um, and so, 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 yeah, so I shared an image of that silver dollar on Instagram. And, and he keeps the silver dollars in a tin which is a George Washington tobacco tin um, in the book. And my mother gave me one of those, an antique tobacco tin, a George Washington tobacco tin when I was like 14 because I loved old antiques. And so she kind of gave me this as a birthday present and I'm, and I'm sure everybody was like, Mom gave him what? You know, but I loved it, you know. So that's in my office. So anyway, so I was like, oh, that's where the dollars will go. And that way when Pastor John comes and you, you can hear the dollars shaking in the tin, and he knows just what's in the tin, you know. And, and so anyway, so that's the way that kind of stuff gets built sometimes.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to share with you a moment that really made me smile in the Lincoln Highway. Uh, and it's the moment when uh, the, uh, the officer's watch comes out yeah and we realized the connection between Woolley and wallace walcott from rules of civility, the rules of civility. yeah um, if you haven't read rules of civility but you want to read the lincoln highway it's not going to take away from the story but right. it's just one of these moments where it's like oh it's like a little tip of the hat to yeah. your, your loyal readers i just i just had to say that i really yeah do. Well, thank you
1: and it's true <laughs> thank you very much it's true rules <laughs> of civility has, me, has some meaningful overlap with uh, lincoln highway narratively both books, uh, uh, yes, Wooly is related to the character Wallace Wilkit. There is this watch which appears in both books in a very important way. There's an Adirondack house that uh, plays an inc- a critical role in the back half of both books. Uh, Tinker and Katie retreat to Wallace's uh, Adirondack house, and and Wooly takes his friends to the same house, uh, which is, I guess, you know, 26 years, uh, or you know, is it 20 years later, or whatever? Sixteen. Uh, 16. Sixteen years 16, later. Yes. Thank you. Um, but by my favorite, and this is a weird one, is um, I was, uh, and I'll say, why do I do that? Um, I kind of do it, you don't, it doesn't take away from the books if you don't know, make the connections. I do it because I used to love it as a young reader in like Faulkner where Faulkner invents Yoknapatawpha County, and it has a very specific geography, and there's different families. And so he's writing about different decades, but in different books or stories, different families reappear and characters reappear. The Compsons, the Snopes, and, and you kind of recognize the characters when they suddenly come through the door, and you're like, oh my God, it's that guy from that story. And that kind of brings that whole story into this story in this interesting way. And so I've always sort of enjoyed the way that interplay occurs as a reader. So I began to do it in my own works. And so, um, but I was, I was writing The uh, Lincoln Highway. I was almost done. And um, Gentleman Moscow spans 32 years. And it begins uh, in 1922, uh, and it ends in 1954. And, uh, and this very specific time sequence. Uh, and it ends uh, in June, June 21st, 1954, and the culminating moment is at midnight in that book, when all the telephones in the Motipal Hotel ring simultaneously. And, uh, at the, you know, in the very final pages. That's not a big giveaway, but that's what happens. So I'm writing the Lincoln Highway, and I'm like, okay, when am I set it? I'm like, oh, you know, I want it to be in the mid-50s. I want it to be kind of, maybe the, like the year rock and roll started. The, the, the civil rights movement is just beginning, but it hasn't happened yet. Rock and roll is just about to begin, but it hasn't happened yet. TV's a little bit underway, but not really. Uh, you know, the sexual revolution's starting but hasn't happened yet. I kind of, so I was like, yeah, the mid-50s is perfect. And it's between the Korean War and the Vietnam War, so sort of a moment of peace in America, and the middle class is booming. So I was like, great, 54. And I'm like, okay, so what, it's going to be 10 days. When is it going to be? And I'm like, well, it's critical that it be in June because there's going to be this culminating event at the Lake House, and they need to get there before the family arrives around the 1st of July. So they're rushing to do it, so let's say, I don't know, mid, you know, the second half of June sometime. So that's going to be the end of the book. So I'm writing along, and I'm getting, I mean, I'm like 80% through the book, and suddenly I'm like, oh, you know, hey, that's weird. You know, this book takes place in 1954, and Gentleman Moscow ends in 1954. And what's more, that book ends on the 21st of June, and I, this book is taking place in late June of 1954. And as soon as I realized that, I tinkered with things a little bit. And now... Uh, The Lincoln Highway, the 10 days, goes from June 12 to June 21, 1954. The last day of of Lincoln Highway is June 21, 1954. And the culminating event of the Lincoln Highway is at 5 p.m. on the 21st of June, which, given the time change... (laughs) ...is midnight in Moscow on the same day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. So, the two books culminate literally at the exact same moment in historical time. And I, and I love this. And again, I don't care whether readers notice it or not. I love it because here's this 32-year saga in Russia of an aristocrat and a 10-day story about 18-year-olds in America, and they end at this exact same moment in, in a historical time. And I feel like that's the way life is. You know, at any given moment... There's like a million stories coming to end and there's another million starting all over just in this town alone right and so i like that that kind of way that sets up
0: that is beautiful a symphony of three novels thank you thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that um someone did ask uh wanted to ask more about woolly uh did did you know when you started the lincoln highway how Wooly's story would end I, I do know the ending
1: of the book, as I was kind of implying earlier in our conversation, that focus on this. I am an outliner and a designer. So by the time I start chapter one, I know basically everything that's going to happen. So I knew uh, how the story would culminate for Emmett, for Billy, for Duchess, and for Willie. And in a way, I kind of know how it starts, I know how it's ending, and, and, I'm, and I'm beginning to sort of fill in the middle, in a way. That's the way I'm working is I know this is where it's going to end up, and, and how, what is happening along the way that is going to bring them to this inevitable conclusion? Um, and, and so in, the, you know, in Willie's case, there's a, there's a understanding, his emotional state is a lot about that. And I, and I think, well, like if you, I don't, you don't have to do this. But if you went back and read the book, and you kind of read Willie chapter by chapter, knowing what happens in the end, you can kind of see it. Building slowly as things occur in, in these little ways, and, uh, and and so yes, I did know it, and I, and, I, and I it's a it's a part of the process for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke earlier about questions that are raised in the first chapter, and the question for this one, for me at least, was: Are they going to meet their mother? Yeah, uh, and as you said, questions not answered. But yeah. someone asked from the audience: yeah. uh, Will there be a sequel? Yeah, I,
1: you know, uh, I'm 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 not. Much of a sequel writer, historically, um, but, but, you know, I say that, but when when Rules of Civility was finished, I did go and write some short stories about Eve, who went to Hollywood in the middle of that book. She's this great character, she's very willful, confident, and she bolts and and goes to Hollywood uh, late in that book in 1938. So I wrote a whole series of stories about her first six months in, in Hollywood in 1938, called Eve in Hollywood which you can actually acquire through my website. I'm not, it's not a sales pitch, but but anyway, but, 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 but that's true. Um, so I have done that, but I usually like to like, leave a novel and just go do something totally different. I do enjoy that process of, because it forces me to retool all the elements of my craft. The shift from rules of to a gentleman Moscow and from a gentleman in Moscow to Lincoln Highway is this retooling. Like if you think about a gentleman in Lincoln Highway, 30 years, 10 days. Sophisticated adult young guys, you know, uh, Russia, America. You know, there there is these very different dynamics, which require a very different type of writing style to serve that story. The structure has to be different, the pace, the tone, the language, the poetics. All has to be different to make that change, and that's what I enjoy. Is 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 re- forcing that. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy that as readers. <laughs> So, so if I did revisit, and I, do, I think of all the things I've written, The Lincoln Highway is the one that I'd be most intrigued to follow those characters where, where they went next, Billy and, uh, and Emmett and Sally. Thank you. But it would probably be 10 years from now.
0: What they've done in San Francisco or elsewhere yeah, I don't since know. then. Yeah. yeah, I don't know whether it'd be, be the next day or it'd be 20 years later. I
1: don't know. But, but I can imagine 10 years from now being, there, let's go back and find out.
0: You have to find the middle of the story. Yes, And start again. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, someone in the audience wanted to know, are there any movies in the works based on your novels?
1: Uh, it's been a long, hard slog. But uh, but yes, I, The Gentleman in Moscow... Um, I, they're planning, that they've, they've, it's been written, it has not yet been cast, and we're waiting for a couple of, for a couple of terrific people to get back to us, and uh, if all goes well, that will be shot this summer as long-form television. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, for Showtime. That'll be on Showtime. Uh, and if, um, if the cast doesn't come in time, they'll, they'll shoot it in the fall. Obviously, a very a very sad uh, aspect of that project is it was always going to be shot in, in England and, and Eastern Europe in giant studios because most of it's in the hotel, but there was the expectation that there would have been uh, some scenes in Moscow. And given the terrible things that Putin is doing, that is certainly not going to happen. So that's a little bittersweet. Um, but I'm glad that the story is really about how... <laughs> to some degree, government gets out of control in Russia. It can in many nation, And how the individuals end up paying the price for that. And, and so, uh, you know, I don't mind that that story would be sh- told now, but it is sad that, that we would lose the Moscow scenes. Um, the, the, the landscape of the city is, is so striking. Um, uh, Rules of Civility has been in development for 10 years, but is uh, uh, an actress named Daisy Edgar-Jones is going to star in it. She was in Sally Rooney's uh, uh, was Sally Rooney's book. Uh, 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 Where are... Normal People. people. Thank Normal you. People. She's the star of Normal People uh, and, and some other things. She's terrific. Uh, that is being written right now. That will be a long-form television, will not be a, a, a movie, and that probably they would shoot next summer. And The Lincoln Highway, uh, we're talking to people right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So if not a sequel to The Lincoln Highway, what, what about your next book? Do you have an inkling of what it will be about?
1: My, I don't talk about my work uh, very w- uh, much. I will tell you this. It starts in Cairo in the 1940s and ends in New York City in 1999. But that's it. That's all you get.
0: Okay. Well, <laughs> we are already eagerly awaiting it. Thank you. <laughs> hey, more Tolles, thank you, I, you so much. Oh, can, I'm sorry. Go can I, ahead.
1: Can I, can I, do one, can please. I say some, one other thing?
0: Yes, please. So I just want to say one other thing before we go, and
1: uh, and uh, well, let me start by saying I want to thank Peter. I mean, really, and this is very exciting. This is last night, Peter. Wow, thank you, thank you very this much. Is very nice, thank you. Excited. <laughs> um, so the last thing I want to share is, is a lot of people sort of ask me about uh, the role of history in my work, and and I, I don't, I don't call myself an historical novelist. I don't mind if you do, but I, I don't call myself that. Uh, I, I, I do think of myself as a novelist, first and foremost. And, and, um, but so I want to give you a sense of how I think of the role of history in my work. And, uh, and the best way that I, I can describe this for you is, is to think of it as a theatrical stage. So imagine that you're in the audience of a theater like this, and you've come to see a, Chekhov- a play of Chekhov's, you know, let's say it's The Cherry Orchard, um, now, while you're sitting there, and the play's going on, and there's a scene uh, in, a, in the grand sort of living room, and, you know, if you look across the stage through the French doors, you can see the cherry orchard in the distance. And it's spring. The cherry orchard is in bloom. So you can see the sort of white and pink uh, petals. And it's, it's the late afternoon. You know, that's through the French doors at the back of the stage. You can see it in the distance. Now, of course, what you're looking at when you see that is painted canvas. Right? Like in an opera, the backdrop in a play is very often a painted canvas. Now, when they paint that cherry orchard to hang behind the French doors, uh, they're not going to paint that in, they're going to use the Renaissance uh, uh, tools of perspective to give you a sense of dimension, but you're not going to paint it in a realist style because that would look very weird to paint perfectly executed trees. It would look strange to the eye. Uh, And so instead, what they're going to do is they're going to paint it in an Impressionist style, like Renoir or Monet. And so it's a little fuzzy. And by virtue of doing that, uh, that's going to sort of give that sense that the leaves are almost in motion and the light is dappling through the petals. And uh, it gives you that sense of the time of day very acutely. And it makes sense, given how far away it is, that sort of slight blurriness is consistent with the way you'd expect to see it in the distance. So that's the way that would be painted. Now, in front of this, you know, through the French doors, as it were, you're going to have on the stage uh, a bookcase that is built out of plywood but is painted to look like mahogany. And over here is a doorway that goes nowhere. And you know, over here is a stairway that goes up to nothing. right? And that's all stuff that's been built by the stage crew you know, with hammers and nails to give you sort of this uh, illusion of the room in which you're watching events unfold. But in front of that is an actual table surrounded by actual chairs on which there is an actual China tea service. Now this matters a lot because in the scene when, let's say it's a brother and sister who are coming uh, the the brother's coming to talk about the sister, about something that is quite intense for them, and when he pulls back the chair and pulls, you know, sits down and pulls himself up to the table, you really want to hear the legs of the wooden chair scraping on the wooden surface of the stage. And when he makes a point and sort of slaps, you know, on the wooden table, you want to hear the physicality of that, the hand striking the wood in this sort of abrupt fashion. And when the sister, you know, patiently puts down her teacup, you want to hear the china of the cup clinking on the china of the saucer patiently that all has to feel very real to you as you watch this interaction between them unfold. Now, this is the way that my work is layered. So for me, history is the painted backdrop. I don't care, I don't want it to be perfectly precise. I want it to be done in an impressionist style because it is there to give you a sense of time, of place, of mood. And that's really all it's there for. Now in front of that is going to be a lot of stagecraft in my work. So a lot of plywood that's been nailed together and painted to look like mahogany. And in my work, those tend to be sort of scenes or moments where you read them and you're like, wait, did that really exist? Was there a thing called the circus in Brooklyn in 1954? Maybe there was. And I don't want you to know for sure. That's terrific. But it's supposed to give you a sharper sense of where you are, but with a little uncertainty of whether it's real or not. But in front of that, are the interactions of the characters, and I want that to be very real to you. I want you to feel like you know the people, that you sympathize with them, or they anger you, or they can make you laugh, but you feel a very close attachment to them, a clear sense of who they are, so that when they sit down at the table, you can sit down with them, and that you can watch the expressions on their faces Listen for the change in tone in what they have to say as they exchange their sentiments and their ideas. I want that to be very real for you, what's at the table, because that's really where the action is. But thank you very much for that. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you,
0: Peter. Thank you, Amar Tuls. That's wonderful. Thank you. The Music Hall's Executive Director is Tina Sautel. New Hampshire Public Radio's President and CEO is Jim Schachter. New Hampshire Public Radio's Producer for Writers on a New England Stage is Sarah Plourd. The Music Hall's Production Manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer is Ian Martin. Musical Director and Band, Bob, Lord, and Dreadnought. The Music Hall's Literary Producer is Brittany Wasson. And the Music Hall's Director of Communications and Community Engagement is Monty Bohannon. Special thanks from me tonight. Again, I'll mention Sarah Plourd, who uh, discusses these books with me before the event, uh, helps me clear out the neural pathways so I can, I can speak clearly on these subjects. Uh, thanks to my fiance, Andrea Graham, and her parents, my future in-laws, James. <laughs> Jamie and Jim Graham are in the audience. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Flew up all the way from South Carolina to be here. So very happy they're here. Uh, remember to support the music hall and NHPR uh, as nonprofits. They're deserving of community support, so feel free to show them some love. The community is you, after all. Uh, please also remember to support NHPR's union at NHPR Collective on Twitter. Uh, they're negotiating now for fair wages, hours, and working conditions. Find them at NHPR Collective on Twitter. I am Peter Biello. Thank you so much for being in the audience Thank for you writers Thank on you. the stage. Thank <laughs> you.